If last week's trial, the O.J. Simpson case, was the trial of the century, then this week's trial, the Casey Anthony case, was probably the social media trial of the century. No case was covered like this in the past. And welcome to the stage, Jose Baez, a lawyer who had been trained in the Miami Public Defender's Office, but to this point had been really an unknown lawyer on the national stage, gets the biggest case uh, perhaps ever with the media coverage and so on. And you'll hear from Jose himself how he was criticized for his defense of Casey Anthony, who was accused of killing her daughter, Kaylee Anthony. The trial lasted six weeks. There were so many problems for the defense that Jose had to deal with. How was he going to explain Casey Anthony lying about her daughter? How was he going to explain um, all of the terrible, terrible facts surrounding the case? And you'll hear how he did that and why he was subject to such criticism and ultimately why he was so successful in this case and his other cases. You'll hear from Jose Baez in For the Defense next. I'm David Oscar Marcus. Thanks for listening. I'm really excited today. We have one of the all-time great trial lawyers, Jose Baez, a fellow Miamian, joining me on the podcast. And he's represented and tried some of the biggest cases in America, Aaron Hernandez, uh, Casey Anthony, some of the fraud cases in New York. He's represented Harvey Weinstein. It's a, it's an amazing list of cases that Jose has had, and I'm really feeling lucky to get to talk to him today. So welcome, Jose, to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to do this. So I wanted to talk to you to start out about the case that sort of put you on the map, the Casey Anthony case. Um, how did you how did you get that case? But when you got it, I don't think it was it was hitting all the headlines and everything like that to start out, was it? Not really. Uh, and there's a couple of interesting tidbits about that uh, that I'll share with you. But um, I, uh, I the way I landed the case is just so you know, you, as you mentioned, I'm from Miami. And I had moved to Orlando. And one of the reasons I, I opened up shop in Orlando was there were not that many Hispanic lawyers. So I found it fairly easy to get Hispanic clients there. And it was a great uh, business builder for me. And before you knew it, I, I built up a, a pretty decent reputation in the Puerto Rican community. And the day Casey got arrested, she was in lockup. And she asked a couple Puerto Rican girls who's, who they recommended, and they gave her my name. So funny. So, <laughs> the rest, as they say, is history. Right. It's important to have um, good reputations in the jail. When I, when I was a public defender, the, the day that I left the public defender's office, I told all my clients in jail, tell everybody uh, about me. I gave them each like five cards, and that's how I started my business. Yeah, no, no. You know, it's like, uh, why do you rob banks? Because the money's there. Well, if you want clients, <laughs> the jail is where the clients are. So, so, so funny. Uh, and, and what's interesting is my office was right next door to the jail. And there was not an attorney's office for, I guess, two miles. 
from the jail. And I was the only one that, that was, that had a little, little shack there next to the jail, but it, but the phone kept ringing. So yeah, that's, that's amazing. And, and when you take a case like that, Jose, I'm sure you had no idea what you were getting into. Well, what's funny is um, when the very first day that I was on the case, uh, I, I spoke to a friend of mine who uh, was a reporter for Telemundo. And she was like, yeah, you should come out here. All the news uh, crews are outside the home. I hadn't spoken to her parents yet. I only on the phone. And when I finally, uh, you know, they, they had invited me to the house and I wasn't going to go. And then I thought to myself, you know, it might be good to go there and, you know, I'm sure the news will pick it up and I might be able to put something on the website. <laughs> that's literally, uh, that's literally how I went into thinking this was going to go. I didn't, I didn't have any idea that three days later, uh, 2020 and People Magazine would be in my office lobby waiting to talk to me. Right. And so how so. do you how do you deal with the onslaught of press? Now you're an old pro at it, but at the time, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with press like that is is unheard of and and a skill by itself. It's it's different than trying cases or landing cases. Dealing with the press is a whole different skill. Right. Well, I can tell you this. Um it Casey's case was much, much more different than any other high profile case I've ever handled. So for example, the Weinstein case. Yeah, it had a lot of press, a lot of international press, but I was left alone uh, 99% of the time, with the exception of my court appearances, where you would have everybody congregate right there. That was no such thing with with, uh, Casey's case, because at the time, uh, Casey, uh, I'm sorry, Kaylee was uh, missing, and it was an ongoing story. So I would pull up to my office. There would be dozens of film crews right there filming me walk from get out of my car and walk into my office. I mean, that that's that's the, the, the nonsense that, that it was constant. It was so you had to be uh, on 24 seven. You, you had to be on. Yes. Yes. It was almost it was literally 24 seven. If she ordered Skittles from the commissary, it made the it made the news. Uh, every single move uh, was was made. I, I literally, I mean, I can only think of maybe O.J. Simpson's murder trial back in uh, 94, 95 that that uh, that rivaled this type of, of publicity. It was unlike anything I've ever seen since. And, and, and I've handled some big ones after. Right. And so like the Harvey Weinstein, Aaron Hernandez, probably as big as that was the, the press. Also, it's not an everyday thing. No, in, in the office, we call those Casey Light. they they were literally they were literally nothing and i guess if you you know it's baptism by fire with the media and when you learn how uh you learn the ins and outs the tricks of the trade and the things that they do and you build relationships you know who you can trust who you can't trust and unfortunately you have to learn the hard way uh and, and when we had a client like casey where she was r- relatively indigent. Uh, it, it was the media. It was one of those situations where we had to have a relationship with uh, because it, it, it provided all types of intel. And I can tell you, 
Uh, if it weren't for the media, uh, Casey Anthony would not have been acquitted. So it's fascinating. Uh, <laughs> so I, ha I had not thought yeah. about that. I, 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 of course, was coming into this interview um, thinking to ask you about how do you do a first degree murder case where somebody's, you know, uh, relatively indigent, as you say, but I had not thought of the help that you got from the media in cracking the case. Well, I'll give you a couple of examples of that. Um, first, uh, we were able to license uh, photographs uh, of Casey and Kaylee to a news network, and we were given $200,000 for that. So that really funded a lot of her costs and, and, and legal fees. Everybody thinks I did it pro bono, and that's not the case. Um, that was a, that was a, even back then, that, that was a decent payday. Absolutely. So, uh, and, and we were able to do a lot with that. And when we needed a jury consultant, we did it through 48 hours where we were allowed them to film part of the focus group so long as they held it until after, until, until later on down the road when, when it was okay. Uh, and, and our jury consultant did not disclose anything related to the defense. There's that. And then there were intel on witnesses they went you know we built relationships with the right reporters and, and sent them to go run out uh, ground balls and before you knew it it was the media who found crystal holloway which was george anthony's mistress who ended up testifying that he uh knew prior to kaylee being found that it was an accident that snowballed out of control so that was huge for us, as well as the information and intel on Roy Cronk, the meter reader. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but but those are just a couple of examples of how the media can be your enemy and your friend at the same time. Right. And, and you know, it's so interesting to me that the media was willing to fund certain things like the focus groups, because people don't realize like doing a focus group. That can one focus group can cost you between forty and fifty thousand just to do that. So to to be able to have the resources um, to do a focus group in a case like this is you, it's it's really priceless. It's very it's totally priceless, and I, and I'll tell you something else. It was very helpful because I got to focus on evidence that prospective jurors uh, found to be extremely important and kind of take my foot off the gas of things that they didn't find so important. Like, for example, I thought for sure uh, the canine evidence was going to harm us and they could really care less. They were more focused on the computer evidence. And later on, you know, on the 11th hour, I did a shift and started focusing more on that evidence than I did the canine evidence. So, it, it, and here's, here's the craziness. When they voted uh, for... When they voted for, uh, for the focus group, the, the very first vote and the only vote that they ended up voting, it was 10 to 2 in favor of acquittal. And that was the same exact vote, first vote for the real jury. Interesting. So. Interesting. And, and when you do, by the way, before we get into it, just so everybody knows, can you tell them what the canine evidence was and what the computer evidence was just so they know? Sure. Um, there had been, as it relates to the canine evidence, there had, uh, there was a dog who, uh, uh, a cadaver dog who had hit or given an indication in, near the trunk of uh, Casey's car and then also in the backyard. 
So we were able to really focus on one, how they went about doing the actual lineup for the car, which was non-existent, heavily flawed, uh, as well as how the dogs, they had different dogs that did not hit in the backyard and this one did. And the same dog who hit on the backyard did not hit where Kaylee's body was actually found. So, you know, we were able to point out major weaknesses in canine evidence. And, and you know, I, it, it's funny. People go in with different impressions. Like I've always had, I've always had this belief that a lot of people pay and put a lot of weight into canine evidence. But it turned out that given the overall uh, picture of things, it wasn't as much weight as I thought they were going to give to it. Uh, so as, as it relates to the computer evidence, there were searches for chloroform and how to make chloroform. And those were things that, that we had to show uh, the reason behind those searches. For example, uh, one of Casey's boyfriends, the guy, one of the guys she was dating at the time, had posted a photograph of a guy in a tuxedo putting his arm around a girl at, a, at, a, at the dinner table in, in a very uh, fine dining type establishment. And he had his arm around her with a, with a, a rag and it said, win her over with chloroform. So it, it, our position was Casey saw this picture and didn't know what chloroform was and started researching chloroform. And that's how, that's how we were able to attack that piece of evidence, as well as some other uh, flaws that, that the government had utilized where they totally screwed up the the computer evidence, they literally didn't know what they were doing. And, and we capitalized off of that. Jose, there's so many different strands to the case. I, I find it so interesting how much you had to do in a, you know, people think, oh, first degree murder case, there's, it's not, you know, there's no documents. It's just a question of who did it, but there, each piece of evidence has to be examined. And so, you know, you can't do a case like this on your own. You put together a team. In this case, you had Cheney Mason and some of your other cases, you've worked with Ron Sullivan. How do you decide, you know, how to put this team together? Who's going to be on the team? Um, I'm sure people are always clamoring to work with you on these cases. How do you put it together? Well, the first thing I look for is I look for people who have skills that I do not have. I, I think that's, that's incredibly important. You don't want another you on the team. You want somebody very different than you to be able to not only balance you out and compliment you, uh, but, but to some, sometimes point out when you're wrong. And, and I, when I have, when I work, I work in a very team type uh, environment. And I, yes, I'm calling the shots. I may be the quarterback, but I'm going to listen to what everyone has to say before I make my decisions. And, and one of the important things like, for example, with Cheney, it was easy because I, I was not really a local in Orlando and I needed some home cooking. Right. So Cheney was an established lawyer in that town and he really did finesse uh, the prosecutors and the judge a lot more than, than I would have been. I, I, I walked in there like Rodney Danger Hickfield having no respect. You know? <laughs> it's funny you I say mean, that because, because Miami lawyers, <laughs> people think everybody loves Miami lawyers in Florida. Miami lawyers are only liked in Miami. I mean, if you go to Broward, Orlando, mm -hmm. Tallahassee, the judges there do not like Miami lawyers. And I don't know why, but it's true. You need, 
you need, as you say, home cooking when you go to these other places in Florida. Absolutely. And let me tell you something. The reason they hate Miami lawyers is because they're so talented and they're fighters. And that, and that's the bottom line. I cannot tell you how disgusted I was with the local bar. Uh, I, I, I was not only fighting uh, the prosecutors and, and, and the police, I was fighting the local bar who every twist and turn, I had to deal with another defense lawyer, either pulling something shady with one of the witnesses. Uh, I mean, I, I literally had one uh, local bar member tell, take me to lunch and say, you know what, I'll help you out, but only if you plead her. I'll help you plead her out. And I'm like, yeah, it, just stuff like that. I had another one tell me, I don't know what you're doing on that case. You need to just get rid of it. I wouldn't take it. There's no way. I, I, when it came to support from the local bar, it was non-existent. And I'll, and I'll tell you, and I'll tell you, I'll take it a step further. There was one guy, one local guy who was so anti-defense, who was a criminal defense lawyer, that he was the reason when Casey got acquitted, he had written to the, to the prior judge to basically point out that she should still be on probation. And the judge listened to this lawyer and recalled her back so she could serve probation. Wow. Wow. Uh, why? I mean, it, what, it was, why do these guys care so much? Is, is, it, is it that they're so used to just pleading and all everybody getting along? And like you say, the Miami lawyers are fighters. Is that what it is? Because there's got to be more to it. Jealousy. I don't know what it is. I, you know what? I, I, I don't want to say it's jealousy, but I, I'm left without alternative. I'm left with alternative without an alternative because um, I, I would never get that treatment in Miami. Here in Miami, there's a camaraderie. Uh, if one lawyer needs help, there's always five in line ready to, to lend a helping hand, even if they don't get any exposure on the case or, or get any. You know, I, I just cannot. It's funny. I was listening to. Um, I was listening to one of your um, prior podcasts and you mentioned Vinnie Flynn. Yep. And I'll never forget one day I was, I was in the courtroom as a public defender and Vinnie walked in. I didn't know him from anywhere. And he was arguing a point that I had a good case on and I walked up to him and I handed him the case and I explained to him what, what this case was about. And he argued it, got his, his, uh, his client uh, off probation as a result of it. And, and that's just, the, that's the way I was taught. That's the way I was taught to do. And later on, I got, I, I got a, a, a bottle of wine from Vinny at thanking me. And, you know, that's just the way you, that's the way we roll down here. And, and I, know, I don't, I don't get, I don't get Orlando lawyers and, and other jurisdictions where there's no camaraderie. After uh, I did that podcast and mentioned Vinny, he sent me an, in, an email talking about, it's not the same as it was when he was practicing. There's too many snitch lawyers. There's too many lawyers who run to the uh, courthouse to sell out their clients and their comrades. And he just doesn't like it anymore. And I was, I was sad to see that email from him because he was such a great guy and such a great fighter. Yeah, no, I, I, I I'm sure he doesn't even remember that incident, but I, I do and I'll forever remember it. And he, and he's right. And that's where I learned and with my firm, we do not represent snitches. We never have. We never will. And and I, I you know, I'm, I thank God every day that we're successful. We can we can hand back a, a check. We don't need your we don't need we don't need that kind of money. 
it's it's great. And so, you know, you spoke about the public defender's office in Miami. Is that, you know, people in prior podcasts have said, are you, no, not you, but are trial lawyers born or are they taught? I've always thought it's a little of both. What about you? Did you learn in the PD's office? Is that where you learned how to be a great trial lawyer? I would say it's a little bit of both as well. Um, I learned every, the, the nuts and bolts of who I am today as a lawyer all came from my experience and my, and my teaching at, at the public defender's office. I, I was surrounded by amazing lawyers who taught me to fight, taught me to bring the fight to them uh, and, and to never say die and, and, and really go all out for your clients. I learned that culture, fortunately, early on in my career, and, and it stuck with me throughout. I, I'm molded already. They molded me, right. and I can't. You can't count the numbers uh, of lawyers, of great lawyers that have come out of that office. And I'm very proud uh, to be an alumni of that place. And 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 to this day, whenever they call me and ask me for something or to come speak or or to or to lend a helping hand, I'm the, I'm the first one to stand up. Let's hear how Jose uses all of those lessons from the public defender's office in For the Defense, next. So I'm going to do something a little different in these cut-ins because we're so lucky to have the openings, closings, and cross-examinations from Jose's trial with Casey Anthony as it was televised. So what I'm going to do is play a clip of Jose's opening here where he lays out the theory of defense Despite the enormous amount of criticism that Jose got, this was exactly the reason that he won the case. Check out Jose Baez in For the Defense next. How in the world can a mother wait 30 days before ever reporting her child missing? It's insane. It's bizarre. Something's just not right about that. Well, the answer is actually relatively simple. She never was missing. Kaylee Anthony died on June 16, 2008, when she drowned in her family's swimming pool. And that's what this case is going to be about. You're going to hear all kinds of interesting behavior from all parties, not just Casey. And once you see some of this behavior, you'll realize that the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. We are what we are because of who brought us into this world and how we were raised. Casey was raised to lie. This child, who at eight years old, learned to lie immediately. She could be 13 years old, have her father's penis in her mouth, and then go to school and play with the other kids as if nothing ever happened. Nothing's wrong. That will help you understand why no one knew that her child was dead. That's the most important thing you, you must keep in the back of your mind, is that it, sex abuse does things to us. It changes you. When you go back home and you're back in clear water and you're sitting around the dinner table and someone says to you, why did you find Casey Anthony not guilty? You're going to say, well, I was fed a wealth of information. Like a V. 
All this information came. But it all boiled down to one thing. They couldn't tell me how she died. So back to the trial for a second. You have this, you do the jury focus groups. You have a jury consultant. You're getting ready for the biggest trial, uh, if not ever, in a very, very long time. What kind of jury are you looking for? You're representing a young uh, mom who's accused of killing her kid. What, what kind of jury do you try to get? We wanted smart jurors. And we got we got a we had a very educated jury. I think all but one had uh, college degrees. Uh, we wanted people who were going to question the evidence, not just take things at face value. And I don't know if you know this, but this was a change of venue case. We actually picked the jury in St. Petersburg, and we we brought them to Orlando and sequestered them in Orlando. So. It, I, I can tell you, I learned so much from that case. It was a, it was a college degree in all of the things that could possibly happen, happened. <laughs> and, and you had to learn it. I can go on and practice for another 60 years and I'll never learn or have the experiences that I had in that case. One of the things that you taught defense lawyers and something that I think defense lawyers forget is that in an opening statement, it's the only time that the defense gets to go last. So, you know, you, you know, the prosecution doesn't get to respond. You get the last word. And you gave an opening statement where you were taking it to them. You were aggressive. You, you said two things in particular that uh, jumped off the page. One, that the baby drowned in the pool and second, that Casey was sexually abused. And, you know, you took a lot of heat for it. I, I went back and listened to the Nancy Grace that evening after your opening. I mean, you talk about Orlando defense lawyers, defense lawyers across the country were going after you. And I had to just yeah. smile watching this thing because they don't get it. And they didn't understand how important it is to come out with a theory and explain the theory forcefully and not rely on all this wishy-washy stuff in opening. You know, I, I'll tell you, it's it's amazing because I, I can't. I caught so much heat for my opening statement from ev anyone and everyone who had an opinion, and that was everyone. Uh, so, and, and they were basically people who've never tried a case before. Mm -hmm. And I and I'm, I was scratching my head. They were basically saying that I committed her to testify and that I made statements that the, that I couldn't prove and all of these things. And, and none of them got it. Um, I, I, in your prior, uh, in your prior uh, podcast with H.D. Smith, he mentioned the opening is when you have their attention the most. I couldn't agree with that more. I knew uh, that the opening was going to set the tone for the entire trial. And, and I had to come out and come out swinging. And here, here's the thing. You never do know whether your client is going to testify. Right. You know they don't have to, you know you're gonna tell them not to, or, and, and you know that there's, you'll, you'll fight them and, and drag, kick and scream if they ever uh, try to, but at the end of the day, that's their choice. Mm -hmm. and, and there's nothing you can do about that. So in, in light of all of that, um, I, I had to come out and lay out what our theory of the defense was because 
what happened? Are, are you saying I'm not going to throw that out there so that way the jury doesn't understand the context? And then if, if Casey, who had a very uh, strong personality, if she had not listened to me and not followed my advice, uh, she would have gotten up there. And while I, I, I'm, I'm glad she did listen to me, uh, I, I, those are things that as a defense lawyer, you don't have control over. So you really have to make that call as to whether you're going to throw out there your theory of defense and if so, how much. And I thought it, it was my, it was my personal belief that I needed to lay it all out there, including the abuse. And everybody caught, gave me a lot of, uh, flack for what they call not proving it. And I, I don't know where they went to law school because where I went, they told you, you didn't have a burden of proof. <laughs> That's right. You so. don't. And, and, <laughs> you know, the, go the government has the burden to disprove those things. And the, and the jury mm -hmm. instruction on reasonable doubt is very good. And, and I think one thing that people don't realize either, even judges sometimes have a hard time with this, but you can cross examine the state's witness on your theory and the jury can either believe or disbelieve that witness. I mean, you know, the state called the dad as the first witness. They almost fell right into your trap. And, and hey, you, know, you can question him on those things. David, you hit the nail right on the head. In fact, Judge Perry, I mean, uh, Judge Perry, uh, he basically precluded me from arguing uh, the sexual abuse and closing arguments because he said we didn't prove it. And I explained to him, I'm like, wait a minute. I questioned him about it. And yes, he denied it, but the jury's not, the jury can disbelieve him just like they can disbelieve the accused. That's right. If the accused got up there and denied it. That's right. So where, where in the world are you getting this double standard? I, I completely disagree with Judge Perry's ruling on that. And, and I just, and, and of course the media and everybody said they didn't prove anything or whatever. But it's, it's interesting uh, uh, how they called uh, George Anthony. And that was really a unique situation because I had never experienced that where they called him for limited purposes at different phases of the trial. So when I got up there initially, I was going to go at it with him. And the judge kept shutting me down because beyond the scope of direct examination, beyond the scope, beyond the scope. And I'm like, wait a minute. And I even had case law that, that stated you can go back, you can go past it so long as it's related to the theory of your defense. Of but this judge was not giving me an inch. So I, it ended up working out to my benefit because the more he got up there, little by little, he started looking uh, less credible. And I, I held back on the abuse allegations till the very end. And by that time, all these, all these jurors, in my opinion, thought he was a liar. So the second I asked him about the abuse and started going into the abuse with him, while he denied it, I don't think they believed him. Pretty clear they didn't. So, and, and, you know, I think it's, it's was such a mistake for the prosecution to do it the way they did it. They made their case by calling him throughout their case about him, which is exactly what you wanted to happen. It just seems like they made such a tactical error there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, so there, there are, I, I, I keep citing history here, but Albert Krieger used to say, you know, you can, a prosecutor is going to stick to their theory of their case. And it doesn't matter if their own mother is, is telling them it's the opposite. They're still moving forward. 
And, th- and that's the truth. You know, prosecutors, once they dig their hole, they don't get out of it and, and they don't adjust uh, to, to the defense at all. And this, this, uh, this prosecution team knew what our defense was going to be before the trial. They didn't know how we were going to, you know, throw it down, but they knew it was coming. How did they know? And uh, there were some mitigation issues um, as it related to to mental health experts testifying, because we wanted some mental health experts to testify. And and that was a whole big debate uh, between us. So we went in chambers and, and the judge asked us, well, if you want, if you want to, admit this expert to talk about what Casey told them uh, without Casey testifying, I'm going to need to hear it. And, and and, uh, we had to basically let them know where, where our case was going. I see. And this was about two weeks, two or three weeks before the trial. You know, when you have, when you go after a family member like that, you have to, get your client on board for doing such a thing. They have to buy in. Was that difficult for Casey to do? I imagine it was to, to get her on board to accuse her father like that. Well, you know, um, I, I, I really can't dive into yeah. too much of what, what, what Casey was saying. Uh, but I can tell you this, <laughs> uh, if it's my child, I, I'm listening to what her lawyer has to say. Right. Um, and not that I ever, not that I ever expected uh, any of the family members to lie. I just felt they were lying all the way from the very beginning. Um, and, and early on in the case, um, I'll never forget. I was sitting in the Anthony family's living room and we were, this is when early in the case where we didn't know where Kaylee was or anything like that. And the mother was, Cindy Anthony was adamant about Casey's hiding something. The, the, why is she keeping Kaylee from us? Because they thought, you know, maybe she, I should say, thought 100% that Kaylee was still alive. George was always quiet. He was always quiet and in the corner. Uh, he was that guy that you show up to the house, he's offering you water. Can I get you water? He would get up. Can I get you some chips? You know, he wouldn't sit down and stay still. Mm. And, and then I, and then I said, and, and she basically threw it out there and said, why would she hide or hide Kaylee from us? And I, and I just, you know, I, I said, well, it's probably, you know, maybe to protect her. I mean, uh, and then Cindy was like, but what in the world would make, you know, her think she needs to protect her from us. And I go, I mean, just imagine if there were, you know, abuse or sexual abuse or something like that. And when I threw it out there like that, I meant it like just literally as an example, I didn't mean it that that was what was going on in the situation. I'll never forget how silent the room dropped. And it was, and, and it was all of the Anthony's in the house, including Lee Anthony, who was there. Mm. And I, and that was the first time my eyebrows raised like, Whoa, these people are not reacting to something outrageous like that. It's really, and uh, really crazy. It, it was weird. It was weird. And then we started uncovering things like they hid uh, Casey's pregnancy for seven. It, was, it wasn't until she was seven and a half months pregnant before she went to the doctor. 
And she was clearly showing. And the Anthony family was telling people, no, she's just gaining weight. (laughs) No, she's, you know, and, and it was just bizarre. George Anthony was in the delivery room when Kaylee was born. I, you know, I, I have a daughter myself. There's no way in the world you're getting me in the delivery room. Um, <laughs> it's just a little weird. It, the whole situation was just odd. And I knew that in order for us to win this case, we were going to have to show just how odd uh, these people are. And I think that's what won the case, to be honest with you. I, I think it was, as I mentioned in, in my opening statement, it was a very common accident that happened to a very uncommon group of people. Right. And, and they got a front row seat thanks to the prosecution because they kept calling the Anthony's back and forth and back and forth. The jury had a front row seat to the trial. You have a front row seat to Jose's strategy and we'll continue in For the Defense next. In the last cut-in, you heard Jose's opening. In this one, I'd like to share the cross-examination of George Anthony that Jose was just speaking about. In January, late January of 2009, you attempted to commit suicide. Did you, sir? Yes, sir, I did. And you even left a suicide note. Yes, sir, I did. And you expressed some guilt. Do you recall uh, being on 48 hours? Yes, sir. And do you recall being paid $20,000 for that appearance? You know, Mr. Baez, I have been nice to you. I have uh, tried to answer every question to the best of my ability. And for what my wife and I might have retained from a news organization to bring awareness of my granddaughter, my daughter, and other missing children, that's what that article was exactly about. It had nothing to do with guilt or innocence or anything like that. We did that, sir, for self-preservations to bring awareness for our children, for not only my granddaughter because of how beautiful she was and the life that she meant to us. I'm going to object to the narrative, Judge. Non-responsive. All of these media appearances stopped when the allegations of abuse came up, correct? I believe that, sir, was done uh, through you, sir. Sir, you recall finding out another way? Please let me answer this. You don't recall being asked by Mr. Ashton if you had ever molested your daughter? You have to be specific, sir, when that might have happened, could have happened. You're not being specific, sir. First day of trial, you were asked. Any question, yes, sir, and I... Never would do anything like that to my daughter. You know, of course, that sex with a child under the age of 12 years old is life in prison, don't you, sir? Relevance. Sustain. You're aware of the possible penalties of 
child molesting, don't you, sir? Objection. Relevance. Sustained. You, of course, would never admit to a molesting your child, would you, sir? Objection. Argumentative. Overruled. He can ask the question if he can. Sir, I never would do anything like that to my daughter. My question is, you would never admit to it, would you, sir? Sir, I would never do anything to harm my daughter in that way. Only in that way. You know, Jose, every night on the news, I mean, you were, forget about being attacked, your client was just being convicted every night in the news. Do you go home after trial and watch it and, and shake your head, or do you not watch the news during a trial like this? What do you do? No, I didn't, I didn't watch the news. I had seen enough prior to that, and I knew it was going on. Um, and I, I, I'm a big believer. You know, I, I get so bothered when I see lawyers who are, they go try a case, and they walk out of the courtroom, and they start granting interviews at night. I, I cannot understand what they're doing to prepare for the next day. Right. Um, it, it shocks me. It shocks me. And I have never done that. Uh, I don't, I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's a good look for the client. Uh, so, so no, I, I, I was adamant about that. And even, even when clients want you to go out there, I, I, I'd have to, it would have to be a unique set of circumstances for me to ever do that. And now that you've dealt with so many different press cases, I mean, I guess when you come to an Aaron Hernandez case after Casey Anthony or Weinstein, you sort of have the way you do things with the press. And, and it seems like they've almost come to have a, a working relationship with you where they, you know, that, that, that wasn't really there in the Casey Anthony case. Well, you know, o- over time now, Casey's case was three years long. So, right. and it was every day of coverage. So I couldn't help but, but uh, I guess, veer towards certain reporters who I, I trusted and, and uh, thought were more credible than others. Uh, so, you know, I, like I said earlier, it's a learning experience. Relationships are great when you have them, but they have to know it's going to be a one-way relationship it's a one-way street and the day I need something or want something, I'll give it to you. But, uh, you know, don't expect any, don't expect anything in return. Uh, so, and, and many of them are okay with that. And if they're okay with that, they usually end up getting scoops and stories ahead of their colleagues. Anyway. Right, right. Right. You mentioned that, that the case went on for three years. I, I don't think people realize that, that Casey Anthony is in prison for these three years waiting for trial. And, you know, how difficult it is to get ready for a trial when your client is at the jail. It's, you, you can't just call them up and have a call about doing X or so. You have to go over there and, you know, leave your cell phone back at the office. It takes all day. It's, a, it's, a, it's an enormous burden to have a client that's in custody. Yeah. And, I, you know, what I would do is I would work all day. I would, um, I would go see her at night. Uh, and, of course, you know, the, the press made a, lot, a big deal out of that. Um, but I, that's just the way, you know, I had other cases that I need to keep my business open and that was a struggle. It was right around the, um, the, it was right around the time, the financial crisis. So it was really a struggle to, to keep the lights on and to, and to keep business afloat. So I was working twice as hard and, uh, you know, 15, 16 hour days and, and then I'd go see her. 
and we go over what what was covered and and you know you you grind through it you grind through it because people don't realize you know you have to keep a practice going when you have a case like this if if this was your only case you'd go out of business in 2 seconds and so you have other clients and other things you need to deal with people don't understand the real business of the law which is which is impossible sometimes right no and and i had i had i lost a lot of business because everybody thought oh he's too busy with that case he doesn't have time for my case right and you know that that's just not the way it it works you you need multiple cases to keep a business open and and to pay employees and rent and things like that. So of course it, it paid was, off in it the was end. a challenge. It paid off in the end because it, when it, you win, you, you know, get, you get a ton of work. <laughs> you know, it did, but I'll be, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Business did not pick up for a while for like a year or two after. That's and, strange. Why do, what do you I make thought, of that? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I think it was probably people did not want to be associated with right. Casey. Right. You know, right. Uh, because so-and-so hired Casey Anthony's lawyers, the first thing the news would say. Right. Well, I don't want to be associated with Casey Anthony, even though she's walking free and, uh, you know, had a, a good lawyer. It doesn't matter. I'll, I'll, I'll get convicted and not be associated with her. I guess that was, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I really, uh, but it took a while and, you know, it, so I was determined, I, you know, it was early on in my, in my legal career that I took that case and I still felt, and I still feel today, I have many more cases in front of me. And, and the last thing I want to do is be, uh, uh, you know, defined by one case because, you know, my growth, uh, is continuous. And, and I, I think as a trial lawyer, you have to continue to reinvent yourself. I, I make it a point to try something new with every single case I try and doesn't mean you don't stick to what works. Right. And you know, you, you, you keep your strengths, but you always try to evolve. And I'm nothing like I, I, I can honestly say when I self-evaluate myself is I'm nothing like I was back then. I, I think there are new aspects that I've learned and from other like cases can, and other can, experiences. Can you give us an example? Sure. Um, I, I think, well, for example, now uh, I have an extensive white collar practice and I, I, I've had to learn that, that I've had to learn. Usually I'm, I, I, early part of my career, you're representing the poor underdog. Right. Well, when you start representing billionaires and people who are wealthy, the arguments aren't the same. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, but but I always say, uh, you know, because I, I caught when I first started doing white collar, like Bloomberg and all of these other uh, financial outlets would be like, well, what do you know about white collar cases? You, you handle murder cases. And I, my response is there's no such thing as a white collar jury. <laughs> That's right. And, <laughs> That's very good. That's very good. I, I, I don't care what you say. You're going to get the same group of people and, and you have to learn to always try your case to your audience. Right. And when you represent, you represent a, a different, I, I don't want to call them class, but a different uh, socioeconomic type. group right. or, or type of client, you have to basically take on their world. Um, I had last summer a, a billion dollar fraud case in Brooklyn where I was re representing Orthodox Jews. 
And I, you know, I grew up in Miami and while, while there, there's the extensive Jewish community here, I, I had no idea. I was never exposed to that community. And I, I have to tell you now, after having been, I absolutely love them. They took me in as one of their own. Uh, I, I, it was, it was an amazing experience to see a different culture, a different religion and, and, and how committed they are to their principles. And I incorporated a lot of that into the case. And, and, and you know, I think as the, the voice of your client, you have to take on certain things. Um, I, I, I never forget. I, I had like three parts of my closing arguments where I'm, where I'm quoting, I, I'm basically saying, I, I'm speaking in Yiddish. <laughs> picked up in the trial. Oy vey, Jose. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, the Hispanic communities and Jewish communities have always been very close. Yes. I, I, yeah, I'm aware of that. But I mean, I, I, to be honest with you, when it comes to Brooklyn Orthodox Jews, I had no idea <laughs> yeah. Yeah. what that world was about. But I, I, I mean, I absolutely love them. Uh, we had my client and his family were amazing people. Uh, his extended family, the community, the, the rabbis would come. Every time I call my client, he, uh, he doesn't answer the phone and says, hey, Jose. His first response is, yes, rabbi. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. So, That's great. I mean, you know, I, I could go six months without calling him, and the first words out of his mouth are, "Yes, Rabbi." That's what so, I, that's, um, that's your new nickname with me. I'm going to start calling you <laughs> Rabbi Bias. So, 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 and and you walked him. I mean, you—that's another case yeah, that, yeah. that you know you got a not guilty. Yet. And it, I don't think people realize, and this is part of the greatness of coming out of the public defender's office. Just to circle back, is you know there isn't a just a murder. Uh, criminal defense lawyer or a white collar criminal defense lawyer. The best criminal defense lawyers are people who can try a murder case one week and a white collar case the next week and a rape case the next week. You have to be able to speak to juries, as you say. Those are the best trial lawyers. Yes, and and even civil cases. I mean, I've had, I've been very lucky to to try some civil rights cases, some other wrongful death cases, and. It, it, the rules are slightly different, but the, but the heart of the cases are the same. And that is being a storyteller, being able to capture an audience, to keep them with you, to understand and know what they're looking for. And that's one, that's one thing that I, when it comes to juries, I try to, in, I, I try to involve them in every aspect of the case. And I try to keep a dialogue between the jurors even though they can't speak to me, right. I do my best to, to find nonverbal cues um, and, and, and different things like that. Uh, and, and like, for example, it's even as simple as uh, when you're questioning a witness, you can turn to them and say, tell, you know, explain to us. And, right. you know, so, so the, the witness is talking to not only the jury, but to myself or, or, or tell the jury what you mean by that or, or different things like that, where you incorporate them and, and, and they appreciate it because being a juror is really the worst job in the world because you can't speak. You have to sit there for eight hours. You need to raise your hand if you got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you have nothing in common with the people 
who you're there with. And the only thing you do have in common, you can't talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so you have to always be cognizant of your, of your audience. And I think to be a great trial lawyer, one of the things that I'm always aspiring to do is connect with the jury, connect, figure out what it is they need, what it is they're looking for in the case and, and deliver it to them as best you can. And in Casey Anthony's case, don't you, didn't you feel that they were looking to hear from her and wanted to hear from her? I mean, here you come out an opening and, and make these claims and, and then you end up not calling her. That must've been a very difficult decision. Not really, because they did hear from her. They heard all of the lies. <laughs> right. And I, I, I think when you tell that many lies, while we had explanation, my whole case was explaining those lies away yeah. and, and giving the jury that explain this is the reason. And I did it. I knew I could do it a lot better than she could because they would already be looking at her as a liar. So. So in light of that, you know, the prosecution played tons of jailhouse tapes, audio recordings, phone calls, different things. So they got to hear plenty from Casey Anthony. What they didn't hear was why she was saying these things. And that's what I was delivering to them day in and day out. So by the time the end of the trial came, really, there's nothing for you to say. Yeah. You yeah. know, there's, there's, there's nothing for you to say. You're, you lied. You're a liar. We have to own that. But we have to tell people why you lied. And being a liar is not is not being a murderer. Right. Right. So. You know, switching to the closing for a second, I have to say my favorite moment of the closing was when you I were know where there. you're going. I know where you're going. <laughs> you were up there and, and Ashton starts laughing um, and you you called him out on it. And and it was perfect because. You know, I don't think people realize, like you say, you have to involve the jury and speak to the jury. The jury saw him laughing. So you could either ignore it and then the jury's going to have to decide for themselves what's going on. Or you could call him out on it and you called him out on it. And it was perfect, I thought. The judge got pissed. But, you know, yeah. you have, you're have you not playing to the judge. You're playing to the jury. Well, you don't know why he got pissed. So here, let me tell you the backstory there. Yeah. He had, he had been laughing ever since the opening statement. So he thought my opening was just the funniest thing he'd ever heard. And every time during or during witnesses testimony or the defense case, he just he was having a grand old time over there by himself, cracking jokes. He made all kinds of jokes during cross-examination, all very inappropriate. Talk about a guy who's not self-aware yeah. that, you know, this is the this is a baby's murder case. You're talking about a child. And he went, I'll never forget one. At one time, he was questioning our entomologist who had done a study using a pig. And he asked, did you wrap your pigs in a blanket? Ha 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 ha. You know, like thinking it was funny. Ugh. And I didn't find that funny at all. Brutal. I didn't find any of what he, I didn't find any of this, anything in this case funny. And, um, and the jury didn't either. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so, okay, he, you know, he was a very cocky lawyer, a good lawyer, nonetheless, you know, a, 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 a fierce advocate and, and someone that needed to be respected. But, you know, he was just not very self-aware. And I had told the judge repeatedly, there was one point 
where the judge threatened to throw him off because of some of his behavior. Uh, but the judge kept saying to me, I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't see it. I go, he was just laughing two minutes ago. He goes, I didn't see him. Uh, so uh, when I got up there, I'm like, okay, you're going to see him now. Cause I'm going to point it out to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's like in the basketball game when the first guy commits the foul and the second guy gets caught for a clock in him. Yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, the whole, that whole thing was, it, it was going to happen. And I, and it was really weird because I'll never forget. I saw him out of the side of my eye. And if you, if you ever watch that tape closely, you'll see, I glance over there for a second and it just happened to step into my, what I was arguing at the time about a witness. It was George Anthony. And I said, it doesn't matter who's asking him the questions, whether it's me or this laughing guy right here. And it just, it, it flowed. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't have planned it any better. So, but yeah, he, and, and yes, he got, he didn't like what I did and he was going to hold us both into in contempt. And prior to him doing that, um, I, I kind of played the judge a little bit by, by before he issued his ruling, I, I stood up and I said, look, we're all, it's been a long trial. We all get caught up in the moment. I would ask that you not hold him. And I was talking about the prosecutor. Please do not hold him in contempt. Great. He probably didn't realize what he was doing. Now, I was not doing it to save his ass. I was doing <laughs> it to save mine. <laughs> you know, because I knew if he held him in contempt, he was going to go right at, at me next. Double technicals. So, uh, yes. So that that's kind of why I, I, I took that approach. But yeah, no. Um you have to be aware and, and he's not the first I mean I've seen other prosecutors act inappropriately when they're so used to winning all the time right, right. they really There's... do get cocky we'll hear how the trial ends up in For the Defense next I couldn't let this podcast episode go without playing for you the laughing guy clip from Jose Baez in closing here you go the 24th he issues a police report and reports him missing. The 15th, she's reported missing. He doesn't say a word about this alleged argument. Remember the, remember the argument over the gas cans in the trunk of the car? Give me, here's your fucking gas cans. Well, on the 17th, a detective goes and inspects the shed. He doesn't say anything about that. Hey, you know, by the way, I had this fight with my daughter. She wouldn't let me near the trunk of the car that smells like death. And here are the gas cans. Why don't you take them and fingerprint them? He doesn't say a word about them. It's not until near August 1st that he tells them about it, and they collect it. And they take this photograph. Then the first week of August, he's photographed by the media inadvertently, and all of the, all of the duct tape's the same. We're not talking about fantasy forensics anymore. We're talking about cold, hard evidence. Evidence that points to one person, and one person only. And he could get up here and lie all he wants and dance around the truth, but the truth is the truth. And, he, and depending on who's asking the questions, whether it's this laughing guy right here or whether it's myself. So Objection. approach the bench. You know, some of the trial books that I've read have always talked about the jurors want to, it, the facts, of course, are important, but in, in a case where 
they can't decide. A lot of times they're going to rule for the lawyer they trust and like better. And in this case, when you bring something like that out in closing, that's been happening all trial. I don't think the jury can help but dislike the guy. Yeah, no, they did not like him. Uh, they didn't like him anywhere near how much he liked himself. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> well, that's, that's mean, true a lot of times a prosecutor says that. Yeah, yeah. He was the media darling. He was the media darling. They absolutely loved him. He was complimented left and right every day. Uh, on the way into the courthouse while we were waiting for the verdict, people, he was high-fiving people on the way to the courthouse before the verdict was read. Mm. Uh, it, was, it, it was interesting behavior, to say the least. And then later, after losing, he went off. He didn't even show up for the sentencing. He went out to New York and, and did the media rounds and, and, and signed a book deal and ended up becoming the elected uh, prosecutor in Orange County after losing the biggest case of his career. So it just goes to show there's no such thing as bad publicity. Especially um, for a prosecutor. So, especially for a prosecutor. Oh, oh, it gets even better. Subsequent to that, he got caught up in the uh, Ashley Madison scandal. As the, the elected prosecutor, it was discovered he was, I guess, on Ashley Madison from the state attorney's office. Oui. And um, while being married, of course. Um, and now I think he's a judge now. Huh. I, so, I know he lost, yeah. right? One of the elections um, after Yeah, that. he lost re-election. Yes, he lost the re-election bid after the Ashley Madison. After Ashley, Ma and, after Ashley uh, Madison. <laughs> yeah, so... One, one question I have for you, Rabbi, is, is this, because a lot of people ask criminal defense lawyers, how do you defend those people? How do you represent those people? Um, you know, you represented Aaron Hernandez after being convicted of murder, Casey Anthony accused of killing her daughter. How, what's your answer to those people, you know, at the cocktail party when they ask you that? Well, I hate to answer it because it's such a... Um, idiotic question it really is uh, it really and, is and I, and I really yeah it, it is it is because they 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 say that from a, a you know on top of a white horse as if they're they've lived a perfect life themselves um the best way i can answer it without diving into too much detail as you know you kind of have to do when you when you get asked that question and that is that i do this for two reasons um one not everybody who gets arrested is guilty. Um, right. Right. And, and there is so shockingly uh, a great number of innocent people who get charged and people who get charged for behavior that shouldn't be a crime. So, um, and, and then the, the trial becomes, was this a crime or not? Mm -hmm. um, or was this person the person who actually did it? So there's that. And then the other thing is I, I'm a big believer in, and, and I wouldn't be where I'm at if it weren't for second chances and maybe second, third or fourth chances in my, in my life. But, you know, and we're all greater than the worst thing we've ever done. We all have human dignity. And if you're not an empathetic person, you can't do this job. That's right. You know, no, for I, sure. trust me, I got, I get frustrated with clients just as much as the next guy or, or gal. Um, I, they can really get me get under my skin at times. But at the end of the day, I'm a human being and I look across the table and I see a human being. I don't see I don't see someone less than human. 
which is what we do when we when people ask that question. I actually, you're basically saying, yeah, go ahead. you're actually saying that person's not human. That person's not worthy uh, of human dignity. So but that's why I. I I hate answering that question. It's one of the reasons I think prosecutors should actually have to be public defenders before they prosecute. I really believe that. I think the system would be mm -hmm. so much better if every prosecutor went and and tried cases as a as a defender for a year or two. I, I just think they would get the perspective of representing a person, a family who's sitting there watching, you know, all this happen. It, it would, before they throw out, hey, put this person in jail for 20 years, 30 years, whatever it is, I think it would help the system quite a bit. Yeah, and life is complicated. Things are not black and white. We live in the gray all day, every day. And, and you know, when it comes to these things, it, it really, it, and when it comes to prosecutors, you become so judgmental, so jaded, yeah. and, and they're not held accountable for their actions. You know, prosecutors, never having to say you're sorry. And, and that's the saddest part about our system and that people don't realize is that they can make a mistake all the time and they would, are never held accountable for it. Right. And not only that, they never want to admit they're wrong. They'll fight and scratch <laughs> to the bitter end that when they make a mistake, um, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I, I, we've been going for a while. I want to, I want to get towards the end because you've been so gracious with your time. So you finish the closing. Um, you go after Ashton deservedly. So the jury goes out. Are you, how do you feel when the jury goes out? Are you confident? Are you scared? How do you feel in this case? I had a strong feeling they, def they were not going to get first degree murder because I felt the trial was going our way for a while. Uh, you know, you wouldn't know it by, by what was going on, but we really, they, we really kept the jury and the witnesses all focused on one thing. How'd she die? Where'd she die? When'd she die? Okay. You, you say it was her, but where's the evidence that links her to this mm -hmm. death that you don't know how it happened. And, and it just, it, we, we, you can never talk. We have very few tools in, in our toolbox as criminal defense lawyers, but the ones we have, if you utilize them properly, they can be very powerful, such as uh, the presumption of innocence, reasonable doubt. I, I, I make it a point during all phases of the trial to really bring that out in one form or another. During uh, jury selection, opening statements, you're going to hear me talk about reasonable doubt. Uh, during, if I can get presumption of innocence or a reasonable doubt in cross-examining a witness or direct, I'm going to get it out somehow. Uh, and in closing, you're going to get a, you're going to get a class on it. So, and, and then, you know, the judge gets reinforces it with the instructions. So I, I, I am a big believer that sometimes we get a little too fancy yeah. and we lose focus of the main tools that you have. You, you have, it, it's like a, building a foundation of a house. You got to, don't forget the foundation. And if you forget the foundation, your house is going to get blown away no matter how nice it is. So true. So, so true. So always start there. You start with your foundation, then go ahead and get fancy. <laughs> then go ahead and, and, you know what I'm saying? Then get creative and, 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 and try to do the things you want to do in the case that are, that are unique. But oh, never forget your foundation. And I, and I think a lot of lawyers, unfortunately, uh, forget those aspects. I cannot fathom how, you know, when I was taught as a public defender, you know, teach, teach, teach. 
And then they came up with some, and then I hear these crazy things about some Ohio method or whatever. I don't know what that's all about, but I, I really, you know, I really think you have to stick to your foundation and utilize the, the tools that you have and then always do something new. Keep your, keep your presentation of evidence fresh, never dull. Um, I don't, I don't ever practice my openings or closings in front of my colleagues because I want it to be fresh. I, I know, I know that that's something a lot of people do. Um, when I'm saying it, I want it to come out as natural and as new as it possibly can. Of course, I do my outlines and I, and I have certain parts that I might rehearse, but generally speaking, the very first time I do my openings or closings, they are for the they are before the jury they're the first ones hearing it you know my wife would be happy if uh if i didn't rehearse beforehand because she must hear my openings <laughs> and closings like 50 times uh she gets sick of it no, look i know what works I, I mean i know what works for me doesn't work for everyone so i get it and everybody and, and ron sullivan likes to say because he and i uh teach at harvard at the taw uh, nobody can be a better you than you. That's right. Exactly. I, I think that's great, great advice from a, a great lawyer. And, and, and I would pass that on to all of your listeners too. So Jose, the jury's out, you, you're feeling okay about it. Um, they come back, not guilty. I mean, unfucking believable. And how do you deal with that after you do you go party do you celebrate do you is it somber with everybody what happens after a, a win like this oh my god it was crazy um so here's here's the let me see if i can if i can take you guys to to, to right beside me for a second so i'm feeling decent i'm like i'm like okay i feel pretty good about the case but you never know so I'm hearing not guilty, the first not guilty. And that was the one where their life or death was on the line. So it was important to me. I grabbed Casey's hand. And then the second not guilty, I squeezed it even harder. Mm -hmm. And then the third not guilty, which was, that was it. The third not guilty was nothing left but misdemeanors at this point. And I never fought the misdemeanors. We never, we never contested it. So those were, were, were here you go, gimme's. And by the third one, I squeezed her hand so tight, I could hear her, her bones cracking. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and then when it was over, you know, we went in, we gave our, I, I wanted to be very brief with a press conference. We weren't going to do a bunch of victory laps or anything like that. Um, and, and then we went to this place where we had had lunch all across the entire time. Um, and, you know, that was, uh, it was a relief. It was, it was more like a long day after court, you know, we, and, and of course the media was there. They made a big, big, uh, to do about it. Nancy Grace, uh, was talking about us having a champagne jamboree. Uh, I don't really know what that is, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, you know, she said the devil was dancing tonight. Uh, and I thought to myself, no, that, that's, that's when you were on dancing with the stars. Huh? <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, but what you really have to hear is how, is what I call the great escape. I don't know if we have time for that or not, but tell that's me. when we got yes. her out of jail. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll try and give you, I'll give you the cliff notes version. No, tell so us. I knew I, I had gotten her out of jail a couple of times and they kept throwing her back in with, you know, to mess with us with these bad check charges. Um, 
And I knew every time there was helicopters that follow us. There's no, everybody's going to want to know where she's going when she gets out of jail. So I came up with this elaborate scheme to how we were going to utilize, uh, how we were going to lose the media and the helicopters. And, um, and so long story short, I had five interns. I had a huge group of interns, like six or seven of them from FAMU law school. They were all great kids and, and they all worked hard and everybody really put in. So what we did was we all, everybody put, uh, like, um, paper over their windows at the, uh, you know, when we, when we went to go pick her up. Right. And I had everybody waiting for us inside an underground garage. So we get her out of jail. We walk out under SWAT team supervision mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I hear everybody screaming like we were in a Justin Bieber concert. We get in. We, I mean, it was like unbelievable. They shut down the highway for they gave they gave us three minutes. They said, you're going to get on the highway. We're going to shut it down for three minutes and you're on your own. So they did that. We get in the car, we go and we drive straight to downtown Orlando where there's this underground uh, garage where all of my interns were wor- waiting. So we get in the garage and I tell Casey, okay, as soon as we get up to the fourth floor, I have a, one of our, you know, so-and-so is going to be there and we're going to get out of this car and we're going to go into the other one. She goes, okay. So I, the, the next thing you know, I, I go, get, just j- come right behind me and we, we got to do this quick. So we get out of the, I, I don't want to wait to the fourth floor. When I get to the third floor, I see one of our interns there. I'm like, no, let's change the plan. Let's go with her. So we get in. <laughs> I, I, I open the door and then the next, and then I'm in such a hurry. I have so much adrenaline going. I slammed the door behind me and I forgot Casey's right there trying to get out. <laughs> so I slammed the door on her leg and she's like, ah, she oh screaming. And then I, I, the next thing you know, I basically, uh, you know, I pull her and we grab in and we run and we run into one of the cars of my intern. And then that's when everybody starts leaving the garage. So we have five different cars le- exiting the, r- the garage and going in different directions. It's like totally, a movie. It's like a movie. Oh yeah, it was. Oh, it gets better, David. It gets better. So we all leave, and helicopters, to their credit, the news helicopters, all got on the radio and decided, okay, you follow that car, I'll follow this car, and you follow that car. Sheesh. <laughs> okay. We had a, a co-counsel, a civil lawyer who had a plane. And we were going to fly her to, uh, not Panama, St. George's Island, which is just outside of Tallahassee on the Panhandle. Okay. I had known about it because I went to Florida State and I remembered vacationing there. I'm like, it's a nice little island on the beach. We rented a big house. The entire team was there. Half the team drove up already. So, okay. So the next thing is we're still trying. One of the, one of the helicopters is still following us. And we're like, shoot. And we drive and we drive for like 30 minutes and they're still on us. And we knew of a shaded tree area. And at that time I said, we're going to switch cars. So I called some, one of the other interns for us to switch cars under these shaded trees. And that's literally how we did it. But then when we get back, when we get back to the airport, I had no idea that the executive airport was the same place that the news helicopters refuel their and keep their, their helicopters. So we went straight right back into the lion's den. And we, we literally had to wait till one of them refueled and went back up. 
to run to the plane. We got on the plane and here's where it gets better. This is, they let her out at midnight. Okay. Midnight, one in the morning. Now it's 3 a.m. Okay. We hop on that plane. We go to St. George's Island. Well, St. George's Island has a small little airport. And guess what? It's closed. Oh, no. so, so literally, uh, you know, the first I'm not I'm in the back with, with Casey and another uh, another lawyer. And they're like, hey, who's there at the airport? And I said, um, I, I said, Dorothy's there. And he's like, tell Dorothy to go to the runway and turn on her lights so we could see where, where this is at, where, where the runway is. And I go, what? And he goes, just do it. So I go, okay. So I call her up and she goes to the, to the runway, turns on her light, flashes them. They go, okay, we see the runway. And they're there. And I say, wait, I say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What are you doing? And they're like, we're going to land the plane using Dorothy's headlights. And I said, are you freaking kidding me? I'm like, I'm like, that's all I need. I could see the, the headlights tomorrow. Casey Anthony and her lawyer die in a car in a plane crash the day she gets released. <laughs> well, with, and, with the headlights, with car, with the headlights uh, yeah. to shine on the runway. Oh my God! You couldn't believe I couldn't believe it. And sure enough, he landed that plane like nothing. This guy would have made a great drug smuggler, I assume. <laughs> anyway, what, what a great what a great ending to the story. I love it. So we finally landed. We ended up going to the beach house and we got our, our, you know, our plan together there and, and the rest is history. But I I thought I kind of ended with that story. What a great story and what a great case and just amazing how, you know, the case really, uh, you know, puts you on the national spotlight for being such an amazing lawyer and having, after that, such amazing cases, um, you know, it's obvious how much it affected your life and, um, you know, for the better, obviously, you're, you're handling these great cases all around the country. And Casey Anthony's still in, in the news. I saw her last week in the news for starting uh, an investigative uh, agency. Yeah, I mean, you know, people ask me about her all the time, like, like somehow I adopted her, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, you know. The, the reality is, you know, you move on to the next battle. I mean, there are clients that I have now that really need me. And my focus is always on my current clients. And while I love hearing from my old clients here and there, um, most of them just go on with their lives. And, and look, I know they appreciate the work. Um, and I know they appreciate me. And, and uh, you know, that, that's, that's a great feeling I have inside. But, but um, my, my commitment is always to the people I have now. Who and I'm really, really lucky. I mean, David, to be honest with you, I get so humbled. Most of my cases are out of the state of Florida. They they're from all over the United States. And when someone from California calls me and says they want me to represent them, I, I'm humbled by by all the lawyers they have in California. They want to go all the way across the country and get me. Um, it, it's 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 an incredibly humbling experience, and I always try my best not to let them down and, and, and to work just as hard and to reinvent myself. And, and I, and I, I know I've said that earlier, but you always have to stay fresh and do, you know, work at your craft. It's an evolving thing. It's not something that if you're the same lawyer today that you were yesterday, you're letting yourself and your clients down. Well, so, I just want to thank you for doing this. Thank you for all of the trial insights. I hope 
we can start trying cases again in 2021 because got to shake the rust off. And again, I just want to thank you, Jose. This was really, really awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. And amen to that. <laughs> Have a happy new year. And, and let's, 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 let's put that one behind us. <laughs> what an incredible story. Not only the trial itself, but Jose coming from being an unknown lawyer to being one of the most well-known and respected lawyers in the country. It's truly amazing and it shows how trials, no one knows what's going to happen. Everyone had said Jose was gonna lose this case and had no chance of winning. And he was criticized for how he tried the case and he really had the last laugh. Uh, Not only did he win, he's won so many trials since. So uh, big ups to Jose and where he was trained at the Miami Public Defender's Office, uh, an amazing office, an amazing group of lawyers. I'll see you next week. This is David Oscar Marcus for The Defense.